0: Gilgamesh presented the issue before the elders of his city, carefully choosing his
1: words. There are wells to be finished. Many wells of the land yet to be finished. There are shallow wells of the land yet to be finished. There are wells to deepen and hoisting gear to be completed. We should not submit to the House of Kish. Let us smite it with weapons.
0: You're listening to the Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex, and it's my guest, Kelton. So this text is interesting because it hints at the possibility of a kind of Sumerian Republic where the king is answerable to a council of elders and an assembly of fighting men. So in later records, we have a political title called the Leader of the Assembly. In this story, it appears that Gilgamesh needs them to want to fight for him. He doesn't have absolute power to send them to war. You know, he needs the input of a different branch of the government, essentially. At least in this story.
1: That is odd because I feel like in the other myths we talked about, he is not beholden to yes. literally anybody. Yeah, no, exactly. Maybe the gods, but then he kills their bull.
0: Yes. Yeah, and then he goes and kills one of the gods. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, then, yeah. <laughs> so, so then that stops being a threat to his power. So Gilgamesh is the king of Uruk, And this is, if not the most historically likely Gilgamesh story, at least the basic premise is rooted in human politics and not a supernatural enemy.
1: Yeah, King has to get other powerful people on board with the thing he wants, and also the people who have to go die for him. Yeah,
0: and the thing he wants is a war against a different city-state.
1: Cool, I love that leaders like that. (laughs) I love that.
0: Right? So one possible interpretation I've seen is that Kish is kind of the hegemon and Unug is one of its vassals, and that Kish wants the workers of Unug to do kind of infrastructure work for the kingdom of Kish. Oh. So essentially that it's, you know, it's, you know, forcing its various vassal kingdoms to send workers to Kish to do, you know, work for Kish. Huh. So Kish is up in the north and Uruk is in the south.
1: Gotcha, gotcha.
0: And this episode is about the kingdom of Kish, which, you know, during the first half of the 2000s BCE was hugely important and possibly controlled a huge chunk of Sumer.
1: Interesting. So now the debate is go to war or go to the infrastructure for the kingdom that rules you,
0: basically. Yeah, basically. So yeah, you know, send our workers to Kish to do infrastructure work for them, or fight against the kingdom of Kish and you know establish Unug's independence from Kish.
1: Huh, some real empire stuff here.
0: Oh, exactly. Yeah, so we do know at least in the 2500s BCE that Kish rules huge chunks of Sumer, and there's a good chunk of evidence that we'll talk about in this episode that it ruled large parts of the Alluvium. So either way, you know, Kish has demands on Nudug that Gilgamesh thinks are too onerous, whatever they are. There's this section, Wells to be Finished. You know, these three lines appear every time they debate war. It's kind of like the chorus of a song. And, you know, since these would have been performed orally,
1: that makes sense. Wells to be finished. Yeah, exactly. Shallow wells, deep wells.
0: So, you know, there's kind of ongoing infrastructure work that would be the bread and butter of every Sumerian kingdom. You need to dig down wells to the fresh underwater aquifers. So the Sumerian word for these underwater aquifers is abzu. This is the thing that Enki is the god of. So, you know, both sides of this argument, whether they should go to war or not, use the same argument to argue opposite things. Both construction and battle require the same labor pool. Okay. You know, And if you lose the war, an army might destroy your infrastructure. So first, Gilgamesh goes to the Council of the Elders, and he doesn't get the answer he wants. So it says... In the convened assembly, his city's elders answered Gilgamesh.
1: There are indeed wells to be finished. There are shallow wells of the land yet to be finished. There are wells to deepen and hoisting gear to be completed. So we should submit to the House of Kish. We should not smite it with (laughs) weapons. We should not smite it with weapons. Gilgamesh, the lord of Kulaba,
0: placing his trust in Inanna, did not take seriously the advice of his city's elders. So he's like, "Yeah, oh, screw you guys."
1: <laughs> I I just talked to I just talked to our god, yeah. and she says you guys are full of shit.
0: <laughs> <Ugh>.
1: <laughs> religious differences. Alright.
0: So Gilgamesh goes to the assembly of fighting men which is apparently a different branch of the government, or at least an assembly of guys that have input into what happens politically.
1: Warrior caste.
0: And these are generally the same people who would have to dig the wells and canals. So Gilgamesh appeals to the glorious history of Unug. Gilgamesh presented the issue again, this time before the able-bodied men of his city, carefully choosing
1: his words. There are wells to be finished. There are shallow wells of the land yet to be finished. There are wells to deepen and hoisting gear to be completed. Never before have you submitted to the house of Kish.
0: Should you not smite it with weapons? In the convened assembly, his city's able-bodied men answered Gilgamesh. You old men. <laughs> his city's able-bodied children. We shall go to war.
1: We shall not go gentle into thy good nap. <laughs> you old men should not submit to the house of Kish. Should we young men not smite it with weapons? The great gods created the structure of Unug, the handiwork of the gods, and of Aanna, the house lowered down from heaven. You watch over the great rampart, a cloud bank resting on the earth, the majestic residence which An established. You are its king and warrior, an exuberant person, a prince beloved of An. When Aga comes, what terror he will experience. So Aga is the king of Kish. Okay, that makes sense. So
0: we'll see what terror Aga experiences in a bit, but first. So today's episode is about the early kingdom of Kish. So Kish is a city in central Mesopotamia, not far from modern Baghdad. There's lots of evidence that during this archaic period, between about 2900 and 2600 BCE, Kish was the capital of a territorial kingdom. We'll talk about that, but at the very least, we know it was a powerful, prestigious city, and it would retain its prestige for centuries afterwards. So, Kish is in the northern third of the alluvium. And during the first half of the 2000s BCE, this northern third of the alluvium, again in the area of kind of modern Baghdad, was part of this cultural region that was very connected to and influenced by the Sumerian world. But at the same time, this region of kind of central Mesopotamia spoke the Akkadian language, which is a Semitic language unrelated to Sumerian. Although, of course, there's lots of linguistic influence between the two. Being Semitic-speaking peoples, they have a more Semitic pantheon. For example, they worship the goddess Ishtar, where Sumerians would worship the goddess Inanna. And of course, over time, the Akkadian language will become the lingua franca of all of Mesopotamia, and it will retain that honor for several thousand years after this point. So Kish, like I said, is about 25 kilometers southwest of Jemdet Nasser from the Jemdet Nasser period. It's not far east of the later city of Babylon, which of course is a later famous imperial capital. And like both of those, it was a good site for a regional center. During the third millennium, Kish was on a branch of the Euphrates River, although the rivers have moved apart since then. So if you look at a map today, it's kind of at the choke point where the Tigris and Euphrates get the closest to each other and then diverge, again, near Baghdad. But back in the day, north of that point, the valleys would have been in the same place because, of course, when a river's cutting through a valley that is a much lower elevation than everywhere around it, that river can't change course easily. But when the river's flowing across a flat plain, you know, it's very easy for it to overflow its banks and to shift direction. So basically, the third millennium map of Mesopotamia, rivers-wise, looks the same as it does today, north of Baghdad and south of Baghdad. The rivers are flowing very close to each other in essentially parallel lines, and there are lots of branches from each river that intersect with each other. So instead of being two separate rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, it's essentially one big river system with two big inputs.
2: If you want to have a thriving uh, populace and a, a healthy environment to build on, there's probably no better place than the areas around the Tigris and the Euphrates.
0: So already during the Uruk period, Kish was a large regional center, It's mentioned in texts from the Uruk IV period, around 3200 BCE. That is the period when written language is invented. Another city that shows up in these earliest Uruk texts is the city of Sippar. So Sippar is a little bit northwest of Kish, and it's written with the same sign as the river Euphrates. Essentially, in the third millennium, Sippar was where the Euphrates flowed out of the Jazeera plains, kind of out of its more steep river valley, and into this alluvial plain that is easier to irrigate, you know, that's easier to control water and move it around than it is in these deeper river valleys. So, like Unuk and Susa, Kish is a twin city. In other words, it has two main urban centers, and the city encompasses both of them. So, in the northwest, we have Tel-Uhaimir, or Kish proper. This was built around a shrine to the city god Zababa, and during the late Uruk, this was two hectares. And in the southeast, we have Tel-Ingara, which in Sumerian was called Hirsang Kalama, which is Sumerian for the Mountain of Sumer. And this is a shrine of Ishtar, or Inanna, and the settlement was eight hectares during the late Uruk. To the extent that the Uruk expansion was actually centered on the city of Unug and not just a general expansion of Southern Mesopotamian culture into the rest of Mesopotamia. Obviously, Inanna is the patron god of Unug. And if Unug was a kind of colonial capital, and if Kish was a city that was mentioned in Uruk texts, and one of the administrative centers of Uruk-era Kish was centered on the goddess of the city that was maybe, arguably, the colonial center of this whole network, It might raise the question, you know, was Kish quote unquote colonized by Unug and is this cult of Ishtar slash Inanna implanted as a result of that Uruk colonization? So the name Kalam was a concept in the Sumerian language that referred to the land in general. That is everything they considered equally civilized to them, both Sumerian speaking and akkadian speaking. The name Hursang Kalama may refer to the fact that at some point in Kish's history, they considered themselves to have been colonized by the land of Kalam. Which may have only referred to the southern alluvium during the Uruk period. I don't know, but it's possible.
2: So one thing when you talked about Tell Inkara is uh, just for our listeners: a lot of times in fields like history or archaeology, especially in uh, environments in the Middle East, you'll see this word again and again: Tell, 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 and you still see it today. You know, Tel Aviv. And so what a tell is, is it's sort of an artificial mound or mountain, and it's caused by stratified debris over time from thousands of years of, of people living on a similar site. Um, and it sort of develops into what looks to the naked eye like almost a cutoff hill or a mound. So if you ever wonder why sort of that keeps popping up, that's what that means. It's a very cool little feature from living on the same place over many thousands of years.
0: There are a couple advantages to this kind of long-term settlement strategy. You know, one obviously is there's a good reason why any particular site is in the place that it is. You know, usually it's by a river, it's near good farmland or good grazing land or whatever. So, you know, if you have the choice between staying there and going elsewhere, you know, you already have all your stuff here. You already have the you know, land, water, et cetera, that is there. So you may as well just, you know, knock down the buildings and build a new building on top of them. This is why often you'll hear archaeologists say things like, you know, this mound is eight hectares. Or, you know, the city center was built in the center of the mound, and then, you know, eventually the whatever's moved off the edge of the mound. That's what they're talking about, the mound is the tell.
2: Yeah, and the thing that's interesting is that sort of the development of the tell, is sort of a very long-term project. You're kind of paying it forward to future generations, because if you imagine sort of this constant fear of, of being invaded... What would help prevent that, obviously, being on high ground? <laughs> and uh, so th- there, are, there are a number of benefits towards this strategy of living.
0: Well, I mean, it's, obviously it's good for siege warfare, where, I mean, the higher up your town is, the harder it is to invade. It's good for seeing invaders from far away. Obviously, you have high ground to spot them from. And in terms of, you know, especially in Southern Mesopotamia, where the ground is so flat, you know, the higher you are raised above ground level, the farther people can see your big fancy monuments from miles away, which you know, gives you a kind of prestige. It's also interesting to note that sometimes the monuments themselves can become kind of the Acropolis, like at Susa during the Susa I period. They built this massive mud brick structure, but then it you know collapsed and they abandoned it and so on. But later on, when they came back to it, because it had eroded from a you know big rectangular, I guess cruciform object into essentially a kind of eroded mesa, you know hilltop kind of thing. They could just you know, put all their important buildings on the top of it, and that could be their Acropolis, even though that was originally built as the monumental platform for only one temple complex or whatever. So during the Archaic Period, again, starting around 2900 BCE, the first half of the early dynastic, around 80 hectares of Kish were occupied. And if you count the open space between buildings, the city of Kish enclosed a total of 140 hectares. It's difficult to estimate the population, but it was probably in the high four digits, maybe 10,000 at the most. Unfortunately, unlike Ur and unlike a lot of the cities that we'll talk about later, we don't have a huge archive of texts from Kish in any period during the early Dynastic. We do have a handful of isolated texts by themselves, uh, one of those being an inscribed limestone tablet found out of context in Palace A. We'll look at the individual buildings in Kish in our second episode on Kish. We've also found an archaic tablet from the Plano Convex Building and a fragmentary inscription on pink limestone, not to mention the prisoner plaque, which we'll talk about today which is also an inscription in kind of fancy stone instead of just, you know, clay or, you know, limestone or whatever. And then we have one to two tablets of Jemdet Nasser type out of context at Tel Ingara. So all of this is evidence of a kind of, you know, bureaucracy scribal tradition and you know, all of the stuff that we see at Ur that was invented at Unug, you know, that is kind of the mainstay of Sumerian cities. Kish has all that too. We just have not found their texts. You know, we haven't found their library of records, which is a shame. So the cuneiform sign used to write the name of Kish was originally a pictograph of an aurochs or a wild bull. This may represent a god. It may be the kind of totemic symbol of a leading clan or of the royal family, or it may just refer to the concept of power. Obviously, in Sumerian literature, wild bull is more less synonymous with powerful warrior or king or whatever. So over the next few centuries, Kish is going to grow explosively. By 2500 BCE, the population will number in the tens of thousands. So geologically, there are kind of two regions in southern Mesopotamia. There is the extremely flat delta plain that, you know, is home to Ur, Unug, Lagash, kind of all of the Sumerian cities that we (laughs) haven't looked at many yet, but the vast majority of the Sumerian cities that we'll be looking at are in this southern flat delta plain. So here, riverbeds are above ground surface, gravity flow irrigation is possible, again, because the ground is so flat, and because you could just kind of cut a notch in the river and the water will flow out of the river downhill onto the plain below it. You know, because there are lots of waterways and because the slope of the land itself is so gentle... It's easy to transport goods in bulk. It's much easier to transport goods by water than it is by land. And of course, because they can dig canals to pretty much any area of this plain, pretty much the entire alluvial plain is arable. So there's kind of an arbitrarily large amount of land that you can turn into farmland if you have enough labor and willpower and so on. But contrasting with that, the area around modern Baghdad these, instead of being a delta plane, are floodplains. So here, the river is usually lower than the surrounding land. The difference isn't as steep as it is farther north, but again, you can't just cut a notch on the river and have it flow out towards you. You have to either dig a deeper trench for your irrigation or figure out a different way to use that water. The fact that the river floods its banks in the spring and summer means that it'll deposit alluvial soil outside its banks, and of course, that'll make farming possible. But again, you won't be able to develop as much land in one place as you could in Sumer because you, again, can't completely redraw the map of water flow wherever you want. So like surrounding areas, it probably didn't rain enough in this region for dry agriculture, otherwise known as rain-fed agriculture, where you get your water from rain and not from the river or irrigation. So lots of land would be dry for most of the year. So like the nearby grasslands to the north, these areas are good for sheep and other herd animals, but not as good for agriculture. In the 21st century BCE, during the Ur III period, we will see many more sheep in this area than we will in the south. You know, because all of this was controlled under one kingdom at the time, it makes sense to have your intensive agriculture in the South and your intensive herding in the areas where you have lots of grassland.
2: And something interesting to know about this time is that you start to see this really remarkable um, use of goats to clear land and make it more hospitable. And, you know, something I find really interesting is that although it's not popular anymore, that service is still available. The amount that they can can eat, the amount of foliage and roughage, and the extent to which they can more or less terraform plots of land is absolutely remarkable. And in some areas throughout history, you see so much undergrowth and shrub being eaten away to create this cleared land that can be used for settling or farming or whatever that there, there's evidence of sort of this, this, this micro version of of what we today would consider a climate change.
0: The wild ancestors of goats and sheep lived in the mountains mm-hmm. and they were not native to the kind of lowland plains, but the lowland plains are easier to settle and you know, better for irrigation agriculture. So when you domesticate goats and sheep and bring them down into the lowlands, essentially they're an invasive species in that new environment. And the grass there is not set up to handle massive herds of goats, especially when you know, even in nature, you wouldn't have herds that big. Herds that big are a direct result of human domestication and herding practices. So like I said because the really productive farmland in the north isn't all contiguous like it is in the south and because you can't easily, you know, join canals and you know, and develop new land into cultivated irrigated farmland, it's harder to provide grain for huge amounts of people concentrated in one place, which might explain, as we'll talk about in a sec, why Kish is the only major site and all of the other sites around it are kind of smaller and more rural. But even a smaller site can be politically powerful. You know, social, religious, and logistical control are not only dependent on a large population. And if you have a you know religious, political, whatever reason to get lots of other towns and villages on board, you know you do have a large population. They just don't all live in one place. The, essentially, the population of Kish is the population of everywhere in the kingdom, not just in the city itself. At the end of the early dynastic period, we will look at Ebla in northwestern Syria, where we have a huge amount of texts. And, you know Ebla was a major world power of the late 3rd millennium but the city itself was never more than 60 hectares you know it just happened to have a whole lot of other towns and villages in its kingdom and you know it was an effective geopolitical power for about 50 years so moving to language like i said there is a lot of evidence that the population of Kish primarily spoke a semitic language other members of the semitic language family include arabic hebrew aramaic and amharic from ethiopia specifically the people of Kish probably spoke an east semitic language People disagree on whether we can call this language Akkadian. Like I said, Akkadian will be the lingua franca of Mesopotamia for most of the Bronze Age. It's named after Akkad or Agade, the capital of the first Akkadian-speaking dynasty, of course, Sargon's dynasty. We don't know exactly where Agade was, but it wasn't super far from Kish. It was in this kind of same general area of central Mesopotamia. So during the period between about 2600 and 2300 BCE, Akkadian was the lingua franca of central Mesopotamia and the Jazira Plains in Syria. Again, Akkadian or a related East Semitic language, Eblaite might have been a different language. Again, I'm not qualified to decide on these things. Aside from Kish, we'll talk about Mari next episode. Nagar was the third millennium name of Brok, which was itself a major kingdom in this period. Nabata was a city within the kingdom of Nagar, and we have much more text from Nabata than we do from Nagar. And of course, I mentioned Ebla. Not only did all these different cities speak the same language or similar languages, but they all shared kind of a framework for international politics and diplomacy. You know, they were all linked by dynastic marriages and treaties and, you know, all kinds of gift exchanges and so on. Yeah, but also, especially at Kish and Mari, we see a very strong Sumerian influence, especially on scribal culture. Or at least it's easy for modern academics to see the effect on writing. It may be that even though scribes knew their cuneiform writing system originated in southern Mesopotamia, probably among Sumerian speakers at the end of the Uruk period. They may not have thought of it as a foreign invention, because of course, when they read cuneiform texts, they would read it in their own language. So we have lots of people with Sumerian names, and likely many people in Kish and Mari spoke Sumerian. It's unclear exactly what the status of the Sumerian language was. It may have only been spoken by scribes and diplomats visiting from the south. It may have varied by neighborhood. Or Sumerian may have had the role that English has today, internationally, that public business could be conducted either in your local language or in Sumerian because so many people were likely to speak it. Thinking of quote-unquote Sumerian as an ethnic group or as a identity for people to have, I mentioned this in previous episodes, but throughout the entirety of people engaging with the Sumerian language, we have no indication that anyone ever considered Sumerian speakers and Akkadian speakers as different groups of people. There are names for the Sumerian language and the Akkadian language. And of course, later on, when everyone speaks Akkadian, Sumerian is kind of complicated, you know, ar- archaic dead language that you have to learn that is kind of a pain in the ass, but scribes have to do it. But there's never any indication that Sumerian is a foreign culture to the Akkadian speakers when we have later texts talking about learning Sumerian. And we don't have any Sumerian texts talking about Akkadian speakers as a different group of people, you know, kind of like 20th century ideas about language and ethnicity and culture and so on. They're not at all transhistorical, or they, they don't apply in every context. And even in a society where people would primarily identify with their city, you know, with a much more local and provincial identification than most people today. You know, we don't really see that much xenophobia as such between Sumerians and Akkadian speakers. So So moving to religion, as with language, Semitic-speaking peoples share some gods in common, but we don't know exactly what the kind of like pre-contact Semitic pantheon would be, because we only have records of Semitic gods after they've been interacting with the Sumerians for a thousand years. So we don't know exactly what the original version of the Semitic pantheon was, if that is even a coherent concept. But there are some clear cases of syncretism in historical time. So we've mentioned the Sumerian sun god Utu. He was identified with the Akkadian sun god Shamash. Although the original Semitic sun deity may have been a female goddess named Shapash. Sumerian Enki, the god of fresh groundwater and wisdom, was identified with the Akkadian god Ea. And the Sumerian goddess Inanna, like I said, was identified with Ishtar. So I mentioned Zababa is the patron god of Kish. There's no clear Sumerian etymology. It may be related to the later Semitic word for fly. Zabub in the Old Testament is literally Lord of the Flies, hence the book title. So to talk about this goddess of Ishtar slash Inanna, it's unclear whether the Sumerian or the Akkadian goddess got there first. It's reasonable to assume that the Uruk period brought Unug's goddess to Kish, like I said. And it's worth pointing out that both Zababa and Inanna follow the banana pattern of names, where you have three syllables and the second and third syllables are identical. People have speculated that because these banana-type names show up so often in the Diyala River region, kind of like Eshnuna, Tutub, where the Diyala flows into the Tigris near modern Baghdad. But because these kinds of names cluster around that region, this may be either a regional name-giving tradition or names in a dead language. You know, that there was a proto-language there that eventually got subsumed into this central Mesopotamian Akkadian identity. So one aspect that we know would have existed, but we don't see in records, is the concept of personal or family gods. You know, obviously, we do know the personal gods of kings who mention them in their inscriptions, but... As far as we can tell, pretty much every family would have had its own personal God to pray to and to represent that family's interests in the courts of the greater gods in heaven. So the idea being that, you know, you as a regular person are not important enough to pray directly to Enlil or whatever, but you can pray to your family God and your family God in heaven, in the world of the gods. You know, your family God is a regular subject in the kingdom of Enlil, just like you're a subject in your real human kingdom. And that, you know, your family God could pay all the necessary respect to Enlil and ask for
2: the thing you want, et cetera.
0: And of course, smaller towns and villages would have also had their own patron gods, lots of which we don't have any record of.
2: I read once, and I can't remember exactly where, but it was extremely apt, and that's that uh, Ishtar is a deity of contradictions, a deity that takes on these contradictions throughout her rich history. And I guess some examples of that would be things like sort of how Ishtar represents uh, love, and that would be more what we would associate sort of with Eros or like a sexual romantic love, lust, things like that. But Ishtar also can, can come later on to be associated with things like food, can become, you know, associated with things like basic necessities that one would need to live, you know, maybe like the roof on your house or meat or anything like that or clothing. Here you also see Ishtar, and Ishtar is is sort of uh, representative of things like fertility, but then also there are a lot of myths uh, involving death that Ishtar shows up in. It's very interesting, and, and Ishtar also sort of has this very regal persona. That's how we read it through a modern lens, but Ishtar is also... A, a deity of people like prostitutes or people who we wouldn't necessarily associate with uh, sort of this this upper level royal deity ishtar can simultaneously be the patron of your local tavern and also of sexual love and of uh, things that we would consider very regal.
0: Most Westerners are much more familiar with Greek mythology. And I think it's interesting how different aspects of this kind of transregional goddess, you know, Inanna slash Ishtar slash Astarte slash Ashtoreth slash Asherah, et etc. You know, made it to Cyprus, made it, you know, across the Mediterranean. So, you know, if you look at the kind of goddess of sex and, and sexual love and so on, that's Aphrodite and Venus. And of course, the constellation Venus is identified with the planet Venus, just like Ishtar and Inanna were. And then if you think of the representation of the woman who is of marital age but not yet married, yeah, you know, that's both kind of like Artemis and Athena. And if you think of, you know, a goddess of the wild beasts and of nature and untamed whatever, that's Artemis. And if you think of the goddess of war and statecraft, that's Athena. So it's not it's not a one-to-one correlation, but there are these kind of aspects of this transregional deity that dispersed all across the Mediterranean and these different aspects ended up in different Greek goddesses.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting to sort of see where that thread begins. Like you said, it's fascinating that there's such a long-standing association with Venus and this character even ending up hitting, you know, the mallet over your head, so you get it. With us in modern English, who, who still do this, you know, you can buy perfumes or colognes or things like that that you know associate themselves with Venus. And this is obviously simultaneously the deity we all know, but it's also this very long-standing tradition that goes back thousands and thousands of years of this association with this deity who embodies this sort of bodily love with venus
0: i don't know that much about roman stuff but um it's interesting that in the aeneid specifically venus again kind of takes on these roles of you know goddess of war goddess of statecraft you know goddess of conquering empires and powerful kings and so on which i mean obviously there's this near eastern reason for that and of course when the aeneid was written there was also the real political reason for that because julius caesar claimed descent from venus and of course augustus caesar was his adopted heir and had to incorporate that kind of prestige and, you know, narrative and so on. You, you know, in this kind of creation myth for this newly created Roman Empire, You know, Virgil had to kind of incorporate aspects of this old Near Eastern war deity into this cult of Venus that may or may not have had all of these aspects beforehand. Absolutely. Yeah. This is interesting in the context of the content of the Aeneid, which seems to evince a kind of ambivalence about the influence of ancient Near Eastern culture on Roman culture. The first half of the story deals with Carthage which was a Phoenician colony in northern Africa. And of course, Phoenician colonization was the vehicle that introduced the same kind of ancient Near Eastern culture that we're talking about here to a very large part of the Mediterranean. And even though Rome ended up destroying Carthage, it absorbed a lot of Near Eastern culture, both through Carthage and through other Phoenician colonies and Phoenicia itself. So to take a quick look at trade, Kish was a major node in overland trade routes. It was near both rivers, like I said, and the Diyala Valley, which flows westward from Iran into the Tigris. After the collapse of the Uruk system, Kish remained in contact with northern Mesopotamia and with Iran, more so than other cities farther south. In a tomb at Hursang Kalama, around 2700 BCE, near the larger of the two ziggurats that we'll talk about next time, we found 105 obsidian beads. The ends were polished where they rubbed up against each other. And this obsidian came from four different sources. Two were north and northeast of Lake Van in modern Turkey. So just like before, they're in contact with the distant mountain lands far to the north. Two-thirds of these beads were from two sources in Syunik, Armenia. Other Mesopotamian artifacts from Armenia include a nail from tel el uweili and a vase fragment from Unug. And we also have some other obsidian beads that were sourced from modern Armenia and Georgia. We have obsidian elsewhere in Sumer. Obsidian blades are fairly common, as they have been since the Neolithic. We have various beads and vessels from Ur, made of obsidian, and that obsidian is usually sourced from southeastern Anatolia, but sometimes farther north. Looking at other materials used for beads at Kish, we see carnelian, lapis lazuli, rock crystal, steatite, chlorite, calcite, gray quartzite, and shell, as well as faience, which is probably imported from the north, faience being a kind of early form of glass. Let's move to our one and only historical document for this entire period that happens to be extremely informative. So, we're going to talk about the prisoner plaque from Kish. In 2013, Peter Steinkeller called this, quote, the oldest historical inscription from Mesopotamia on record, end quote. It probably dates to around 2700 BCE, possibly a little earlier. The text is a little bit broken, but the part of it that survives records 28,970 prisoners of war. And then at the end, it gives a total of 36,000 which is obviously a very round number in a base 60 number system. But given the fact that some of the other parts of it are damaged, that's probably a reasonable total. So it's carved out of translucent green alabaster. It's 12 inches square and two inches thick. On the front, there's a picture of two men carrying weapons, which we'll talk about. And on the back, there is a six column inscription so this plaque was discovered broken in half. And when they joined the two halves together, you know, it didn't fit perfectly because they had apparently been separated for some time. So kind of little bits had ground off the corner. So it wasn't a perfect fit anymore. So it might've been broken in ancient history and not while well, it was in the ground. But we also see traces of gypsum plaster on it. So that may have been an attempt to kind of paste it back together into one piece. So to look at the content of this prisoner plaque, the text... Like the cuneiform itself is very similar to archaic text from Ur around the same time, around 2700 BCE. It has some signs in common with text from the Jemdet Nasser period, again, around 3000 BC. You know, Jemdet Nasser is not far from Kish and the quote-unquote Jemdet Nasser cultural region, which is, again, this kind of unified cultural region in central Mesopotamia that would have included Kish. And then later on, when we see text from Kish that have... A Jemdet Nasser style art and style writing Maybe that Jemdet Nasser cultural region is the kingdom of Kish. I don't know that, but it's it's possible. But we know this text was written later because some signs are definitely later than the Jemdet Nasser period. So the main body of this prisoner plaque lists prisoners of war and their hometowns. So we have 25 place names preserved, it would have probably had a few more originally. So most entries are in the format, X captives from Y town. After some entries, it'll say the date palm orchard of a particular person. So probably what this means is these prisoners of war were brought back to Kish and then forced into agricultural labor, working on date palm plantations, essentially. So the last section says, quote, 36,000 captives were assigned to the filling of threshing floors with grain and the making of grain stacks. The stone monument was fashioned in Kish. Zababa is the god of manhood. Amar Sheed was described, end quote. So of course, Zababa is the patron god of Kish. It's not uncommon that text will have the names of the scribe who wrote it down. I don't know that it's all that common for monuments to have the name of the scribe. Usually it's like administrative documents or some kind of school exercise or whatever where accountability matters and you know you want to track down the person who made it. So the number of prisoners captured from each place varies from 50 to 6,300. These are reasonable figures given the size of communities at the time. You, know, you could take 50 prisoners from a small town of 200 people. And you could take 6,000 prisoners from a big city of, you know, 12,000 people. So like I said, the total it gives of 36,000 is reasonable, if maybe a little bit rounded up. So at least eight place names from this plaque also appear in the list of geographic names, which we'll talk about in the next episode on Kish. So the list of geographic names is a text from the 2500s BCE. It might have been a list of places in the kingdom of Kish. So some of the place names that appear in both texts are Asha, Higa-Ur, A-Ur-Ad, Lal-Ur, and Kur-Shubur. Notably. Kur Shubur might be a reference to Assyria. So Kur is mountain. And Shubur, or Subir, or Shubar, there are a lot of similar names that are the Sumerian name for the north generally, between Kish and the Antolian Mountains on the Tigris. Later on, the Akkadian name for the north will be Subartu, which is, again, from the same word. Probably all of these places are in this kind of central Mesopotamian area. Another source of prisoners is a place called Uri, or Wari. So Uri, or Wari, was the Sumerian way to write the land of Akkad, you know, this kind of central Mesopotamian area. In this text, it might refer to the Lower Diyala specifically. This is relevant because, as we'll talk about in the future, Uri slash Wari slash Mari might have been the name of a storm god, maybe also pronounced Ware or Mer. Obviously, storm gods are more important to people that rely on dry farming, you know, they rely on rain for their agriculture. So storm gods are more common in the Semitic pantheon than they are in the Sumerian pantheon. And Mari may have been named after this storm god. Uh, the city of Mari, which was founded around 2900 BCE, which we'll talk about next episode. So this prisoner plaque was almost certainly a cumulative account of Kish's victories over time. Um, In other words, this wasn't just one really good summer, you know, one really good campaigning season where Kish sacked 25 plus towns and lands. It was probably the result of many campaigns over many years or maybe decades. It's not irrelevant that the Sumerian king list focuses so much on early Kish, even if so many of those kings are probably legendary slash folkloric rather than historical. You know, the fact that The Sumerian king list makes a huge deal out of the fact that there were many, many, many important kings of Kish, and that Kish spent a very long time as the most important city in Mesopotamia. This is probably also another part of that puzzle.
2: So something I find really fascinating about this document is that sort of unlike other documents that you see throughout history that are similar to this, which very much focus on a ruler's conquest and celebrating the greatness of this this ruler is that this document appears, at least to me, and it could be dead wrong, to be much more administrative in nature than um, having to do with things like, say, aggrandizement or propaganda or anything along those lines. And the reason for that is there there's no way that this was one battle. There's no way that this was like one really good campaign season where, you know, th- we just wiped everyone out and we have you know, names from 25 places. So the thing that's really interesting here is that there isn't a part on the list where it talks about who was ruler when these things happened. And that to me is just so, I guess I would say, fiercely administrative in nature. Yeah,
0: I mean, for sure, like, you know, the, the the nature of administrative text is that they deal with the flow of goods and resources and so on. Of course, labor from slaves, essentially, is a resource. Uh, and, you know, it's good to keep track of where all these POWs are going and whose plantation they're working on. And I, I mean, I feel like there are, there is another kind of monumental aspect of this because... If it were just an administrative document, it wouldn't be in this kind of fancy stone. But unlike the later inscriptions that we'll see from Mesopotamian kings that detail their accomplishments at great length, you know, yeah, this, like I said, this doesn't mention any particular king. It instead praises Zababa, you know, the, the god of Kishite kingship. And, you know, to the extent that it was intended for public view or public propaganda or whatever, it was probably meant to glorify Kish, you know, the kingdom as a whole, rather than any particular king especially since, you know, it was likely that these campaigns were fought under several kings. Right.
2: Yeah. So you praise, you know, Zababa who was a deity of of warfare.
0: So to look at the art on the other side of this plaque, we have two male figures facing left. It's possible the left part of the plaque has been broken off, so we don't know what they're looking at. Both men have beards and shaved heads and maybe some kind of tonsure. It, it looks like the sideburns go all the way up to the top of their head, so we don't know if this is a type of hat or whatever, but if this is a way to shave their head, it's unique in Mesopotamian art. In terms of clothes, they're both wearing a long skirt supported by a belt. It's wrapped around their figure so the extra folds fall over the belt on both sides. So this is a different style of clothing from the tufted Kaunaka skirt, more familiar from early dynastic art in Sumer. They have these kind of big puffy skirts. The only other example of clothes like this comes from Kish around the same time. I mentioned that green slate inscription earlier of warriors leading prisoners of war. Now, these are probably part of the same family of royal propaganda from archaic Kish. So on the prisoner plaque, both men are holding an object in each hand and their arms are outstretched as if they're presenting objects to someone. They're holding a bow, a long staff, a long curved object, maybe a throwing stick, kind of like a boomerang type hunting object, and a similar curved object, which may be some kind of weapon. These suggestions are from Steinkeller. And Peter Steinkeller says these are probably military commanders and they may be presenting weapons to Zababa or to like a shrine of Zababa or something. We've lost the left half of this picture, so we don't know exactly what they're looking at. So to look at the fate of these prisoners, after being brought to Kish, the plaque says, quote, 36,000 captives were assigned to the filling of threshing floors with grain and the making of grain stacks, end quote. And like I said, some were also assigned to work in date palm orchards. The text only mentions four orchards, but they might have been redistributed to more from there. So the orchard managers are qualified by their personal names. these are probably owners of that land and or managers of that land on behalf of either the temple or the palace, Temple of Zababa, Palace of the King. One of these owners is called Son of the King, so this might refer to land owned by the temple of the god Adad of the town Lalur, which is a town near Kesh. So this might be a local version of Adad, or Adu, or Hadu, or Hadad. So Baal Hadad, later on in history, will be a major Semitic storm god. Baal means lord, and Hadda, or Hadu, or Hadad, had a cult center in Aleppo, which then as now was known as Halab, around 2300 BCE, as we know from texts at Ebla. So this concept of taking prisoners of war and forcing them to work in orchards is common in later Babylonian records. In Peter Steinkeller's 2013 paper, he says, quote, due to the absence in early states of security mechanisms, allowing the utilization of large numbers of male slaves in productive labor, male prisoners of war were rarely turned into outright slaves, end quote. It's worth pointing out that although, you know, third millennium Mesopotamian society did for sure have slaves, like chattel slaves, no bought and sold for money and owned as property and alienable and so on. They did have those, but they weren't that important for production. So like, you know, unlike colonial Americas or whatever, you know, you don't have massive plantations that are only worked by slaves per se. Uh, generally, large scale productive labor, whether it's agricultural or craft production or whatever is done by people who are not slaves. You know, They don't always have a happy life, but they're not always bought and sold. So generally slaves in the third millennium are kind of like luxury markers of status because they're expensive, obviously. So it's more a marker of wealth and status than it is a slave-based economy per se. But if you are forcibly separated from your home and family and you're forced to do manual labor and you can't leave, even if it's not technically slavery because you can't be bought and sold and so on, it's not that different from slavery.
2: We will never know about things like autonomy or things like that during this time period. So you sort of have to make these assumptions. And um, yes, perhaps they were not taken from the battlefield. But uh, the thing is, you know, not all Corvo labor is created equally. Could they leave if they wanted to? Or is this something where it's it's seasonal work because of, say, you know, flooding or drought? Or is this a situation where if they try to leave, they don't go home and they either die or then cannot leave? which I think, given our modern understanding of slavery, is slavery. It's a very difficult situation to parse out. So hopefully the uh, son of the king, who's mentioned, was a nice guy, but uh, I doubt he was.
0: Yeah, and later on, when we have more documents detailing what the state is worried about, one of their primary concerns is, you know, one of our guys ran away. We think he's in your kingdom. Our treaty stipulates that you have to turn over any refugees from our kingdom to your kingdom, and vice versa. Later texts, because we have more texts from later periods, are very, very, very concerned with runaway workers, you know, whether they're slaves or just serfs or whatever. You know, people who are forced to work and are not allowed to leave, and often they do leave, and it's everyone's problem with it that, uh, you know, the state wants to back. Which, again, very clear analogs to American slavery and so on. One thing that was very common for these prisons of war forced to work is that they were blinded. It's often unclear whether sources mean blinded in one eye or both. Obviously, if you're blinded in both eyes, that cuts you off from doing a lot of productive labor. You know, if you, if you gouge out one eye, the person would still be, you know, in incredible pain, liable to infection and maybe death, you're disabled, disfigured, humiliated, and so on. Obviously horrible, but they would still be able to do work on a farm, which is what's important to the Kishites. In later Babylonian texts, we see male captives put to work in gardens, drawing water from wells, irrigating fruit, trees, and vegetable plots. And we see women forced to grind grain or work in textile warehouses. So I mentioned the Ur III period, which we'll get to eventually. This is in the 21st century BCE. So after capturing the land of Shamashki in Iran, King Shu Suen, or Shu of Ur commissioned an inscription about himself. It says, quote, he blinded the males of the conquered cities, and he assigned them to the personnel of the orchards of Enlil and Ninlil, and those of other great gods. And he donated the women of the conquered cities to the weaving houses of Enlil and Ninlil, and those of other great gods, end quote. We've talked about the fact that Nippur is kind of this politically neutral religious capital that reifies existing political power, but doesn't have any political power of its own. And in a way, you know, as a powerful king with Nippur inside your kingdom, you know, it is in your interest to glorify and magnify the temple of Enlil and Ninlil in Nippur, you know, the patron god of Nippur, because that way you're not showing favoritism to any political player because Nippur is kind of a intentionally non-political city. Have you seen the... Um, I think it's like nineteen forty nine. Uh, Samson and Delilah.
2: I have not. No,
0: it's it's fun because Hedy Lamarr is, is Delilah, so it's fun to watch it. And oh, you know, attractive woman who speaks English with an Austrian accent. It's like oh, you know, her inventions paved the way for Wi-Fi or whatever. Uh-huh. And uh, Samson is played by this. It's like you know, himbo essentially. It's fun. It's it's a fun old timey movie.
2: I gotta check that out. Yeah, Hedy Lamarr was a beautiful one, right? Yeah,
0: but it, it's it's funny. You know, it's back in the day when you had you know gazillion dollar you know Hollywood epics about biblical and, and Roman history or whatever. So it's fun in a visual sense. And of course, at the, at the end, Samson gets blinded in both eyes and you know, moving a millstone around
2: in a circle, which is what we think of it. The fate that befalls all himbos. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly.
0: So the prisoner plaque doesn't mention gender and it's unclear what the male to female ratio is among the captives. Worth mentioning that in Unuk during the Uruk period, female slaves outnumbered male slaves in the records, as far as we can tell. Also, men were more likely to be killed during or after battle. So it's possible that women were seen as less of a threat Similarly to how on slave ships during the American colonial period, women were often not chained up because they were seen as less of a threat. And this is what allowed female slaves to often lead the slave rebellions and take charge of the ships and so on. It's worth pointing out that uh, the records don't mention sexual abuse of female slaves, but it almost certainly happened.
2: When you talk about these issues, um, you know, it's, it's, it never gets far enough away. It's still a very painful thing that happens. And, you know, of course, there are these horrific killings that now we would call a war crime or something to that nature. And of course, there's this mass amount of, of abuse and sexual abuse that happens. And it's, it's important to, I think, from time to time to just take a pause and remember that although these are words that you're hearing or words that you're reading, these were once real people who went through that. And I think that just, that's sort of an important block of empathy to build, to be a good historian or a good student of history.
0: So to look at war in the third millennium more generally, obviously the text doesn't describe exactly how these conquests worked, but there was kind of a general way that ancient warfare worked. it's, It's fairly well known, but... It's worth reiterating because in this season, we're going to talk a lot about specific wars between specific cities and kingdoms. So the purpose of having a military is not only to use the military, it's also to be able to have the leverage to make demands on weaker partners without having to use your military. So, you know, we can imagine in peacetime, Powerful kingdoms would spend a lot of time obviously sending gifts to leaders of other communities and so on and building relationships with leaders and also asking slash demanding certain resources from those other communities. Sometimes smaller towns or cities would see it in their interest to join a larger, more powerful kingdom you know, for protection against their enemies or whatever. It's, it's not that political power is only ever achieved through bloody combat. It's just that bloody combat is the unspoken ever-present threat when kingdoms with militaries are doing diplomacy with each other. So you know, we, I mean especially 21st century Americans, looking at the modern Middle East and the Old Testament, tend to imagine that the Near East for all of its history was uniquely violent and that's not the case at all. But there was of course a lot of violence, you know, and what separates Kish in 2700 BCE from central europe in 2700 bc is of course the amount of violence they're able to do and the uh, the more sophisticated weapons more sophisticated donkeys and mules and carts and so on so say you are one of these cities and kish has sent diplomats to your city demanding your surrender demanding tribute from you demanding some kind of submission to the kingdom of kish and for whatever reason you didn't want to you know your town decided not to so let's say that kish's army is showing up at your gates so they won't leave until they extract a whole lot of resources from your city. You know, this could be tribute, even when the army does arrive. It's often in both parties' interest to pay off the army as soon as possible, give them what they want so that no one has to die. It's not ideal, but, you know, everyone lives. And sometimes, you know, the besieging force can't wait until harvest. You know, they have to send their soldiers back for the harvest. You know, they their supply line gets interrupted, whatever, you know. Sometimes you can force them to surrender without having to pay them or without having to have a bunch of people die. So, you know, essentially, when the army shows up, they're giving you a choice between tribute and warfare. So if you choose tribute, that's essentially an expensive bribe not to sack your city. You might not only pay them silver and fine goods, but also prisoners and or elites. Often the son of the king of the small town goes to live in the court of Kish, and that way the town won't try anything because they know that you could easily just kill that guy. So essentially, when the smaller city pays tribute to Kish... That's an admission of defeat or submission on their part. Depending on the agreement that results afterwards, they may become a formal part of the kingdom or they may just become a tribute paying ally, you know, a, 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 a junior partner, but not necessarily integrated into the state per se. And of course, like I said, if you choose tribute, most of your people live. But if you choose war, then of course, Kish is going to besiege you. They're going to surround your city and block off your gates and roads. Later on, especially during the Sargonic period, we see evidence of diverting the river entirely. Because often the river flows through the city or a major canal will break off from the river and then go through the middle of the city. You know, it's obviously convenient for transporting goods and so on. But if an invading army can cut off your water supply entirely and divert the river, that's one way that they could starve you extremely quickly. So you have these walled towns, but the majority of people in kingdoms don't live inside the walled city. They live in these kind of subject towns and villages outside of the walls. So when those peasants see this, you know, marching army coming towards the city, they're going to grab their valuables and run towards the city and try to seek refuge in the walls, you know, and that's often why we see the, you know, inner city with an inner wall around it, and then an outer city with an outer wall around it, and between the inner and the outer walls, there's not a lot of stuff, there's often just empty space, you know, that could have been grazing land for herds, Um, and often we see, you know, people building houses and shops in there or whatever. But also it was, you know, intended to hold people from the countryside huddling in the walls during a siege. Yeah. And of course, you know, the amount of farmland required to grow food for an entire city requires a much larger area of land than you're able to enclose with walls. So necessarily your farmland is going to be outside of the walls. And likewise, you know, obviously the city is the entity that collects grain from these villagers and peasants and so on. Somewhere in the city inside these walls will be a massive store of grain that in peacetime it would use to feed its employees and so on. But in wartime, that's going to be the food that everyone eats for the duration of the siege, and you hope that you have more food than your enemy has intact supply lines going back to its kingdom. So now the siege has started. If the peasants have time to prepare for the siege, they might be able to bring stores of grain with them, maybe with their animals. So usually the campaigning season is the summertime, which is the farming off-season right after the harvest, You know, between the harvest and getting the land ready for next season. So if the invading army surprises you at the right time and they invade early in the year, you know, during the harvest season instead of right after it, all of the farmers run scared to the city, leaving their grain totally unguarded. Now, Of course, no individual farmer or farming family is going to try to defend their land against the entire army of Kish. If they invade early, they might just harvest all your grain. Obviously, it's labor intensive, but it's goods to pilfer. So essentially, supply lines are Kish's supply chain from their besieging army outside your gates all the way back to the fields that they control within the kingdom of Kish. During the war between Ebla and Mari, around 2300 BCE, we actually do have the records of supplies sent from Ebla to the army when it was closer to Mari. You know, for example, if you're being besieged by Kish and they have a supply line going back to all of their fields, all of the farmland in the kingdom of Kish, and you have all of the political structure there set up to extract that grain from the peasants, and you know nothing disturbs that, Kish is probably going to win the siege because you know because it has access to the outside world and all of its own grain. Whereas the people stuck inside the city don't have access to their own grain, except for what they've already stored. If you're lucky, you'll have a well inside the walls. Hezekiah in Jerusalem, in the Iron Age, built a very large tunnel, pretty much from the inside of the walls of Jerusalem to the nearest underground source of water, which is probably specifically for long-term siege warfare. Like I said, sometimes the rivers flow through the walls in order to have water transport and like a water port inside the city. Obviously, that's a very convenient way for an army to get through the walls. And of course, one major risk of being besieged is disease. So, you know, if you have no access to all of your gardens, farmland, livestock, et cetera, you're suffering malnutrition, you're definitely not getting a balanced diet, and you may not be getting enough calories at all. You know, you have a dwindling food supply, obviously, so you might starve. The less fresh water you have access to, the more you have to rely on stagnant water, which, of course, breeds mosquitoes and all kinds of other disease-carrying vectors. And of course, when you have a spread out rural population crammed into a closed space, including with all of their animals and you have little to no fresh water for washing your hands or, you know, basically (laughs) drinking water that your body needs, Um, you know, disease is going to run rampant. And of course, invading armies can also bring diseases with them. And this is often one of the major things that makes long-term sieges impossible for the besieged party is the breakout of disease inside the city. So you might successfully fight off the invaders. It does occasionally happen. Or like I said, they might give up you just decide it's not worth the effort. You know, maybe some political changes happened at home or whatever. It's worth holding out in some cases because you might win the siege and if they give up and go home, then no one dies. You didn't have to pay tribute and everything works out great. But at a certain point, your city will have to decide between slavery now or starving now and then slavery later when you starve to death and they take the city anyway. So you might be lucky enough, depending on how the siege has gone so far, to be able to negotiate some kind of treaty. But generally at this point, if they had to set up camp and wait there, they are probably going to want to plunder your city. So... If you don't pay the tribute and then you lose the battle, pretty much everything and everyone in your city is forfeit. So, you know, men and boys are either slaughtered or blinded slash captured, quote unquote enslaved. Women and girls, like I said, probably sexually abused and or enslaved. Cruelty and slavery isn't just bloodthirst for bloodthirst's sake. It has a political purpose, you know, inflicting humiliation and trauma on your defeated enemy is punishment for dragging out the process of you getting their stuff. And it also serves as an example to cities that Kish hasn't invaded yet. So, you know, if, you know, Kish destroys City A and brutally, you know, decimates its population and so on, then City B, seeing that and hearing about that, will say, hey, you know, maybe we're going to pay the tribute. Maybe it's not worth all of this. So, you know, it also deprives the city of an entire generation of able-bodied adults and adds hundreds or thousands of able-bodied slaves or workers, manual laborers, to the conquering city's workforce. And then, of course, there is the human aspect of bloodthirst, vengeance, you know, etc. So, you know, the pillaging power is going to strip your city of as many valuables as possible. You know, they're going to take basic resources like grain and livestock. Of course, they're going to try to take treasure, like jewelry, precious metals, copper and bronze goods. One thing that would have been materially valuable, but also ideologically, arguably the most important thing, is the statue of a god. So each Mesopotamian temple was dedicated to a particular god. And generally, each temple would have a statue of that god in a prominent place inside the temple that people could make offerings to and, and so on. And, you know, powerful, wealthy kings and allies and whatever, you know, if you wanted to do some propaganda, you know, have everyone marvel at your generosity and wealth and so on you could commission a new golden face for the statue where they rebuild the face and it's made out of gold or you have the whole statue covered in silver or whatever. There's a kind of one-to-one correlation between acquiring fancy goods, exotic goods from abroad, and putting them in the temple and adorning the god with them in the most direct way. But the other side of that equation is, you know, if your city gets plundered, it goes without saying that one of the first things the attacking army is going to look for is the temple treasury. So, you know, in later Mesopotamia, if you capture a city, not only do you physically haul off the statue of the god, because it's precious metals and so on, but also you capture literally the god, like the god is no longer at home. In their patron city now the god is captive you know in, in the conqueror city
2: and this is a popular strategy you know for thousands of years going forward it's it's this idea of relocating deities and it sort of goes into later on you have like the elite replacement model and things of that nature so it's a very important and effective strategy
0: Yeah. The most famous example of this is around 1600, when the old Babylonian kingdom got sacked by the Hittites, which is kind of the point when the Hittites enter on the world stage. And they carry off the statue of Marduk, who's the patron god of Babylon, back to, I think, Hattusa. And then, you know, later kings of Babylon have to make their name by going and getting that statue back. In a very real way, the rulers of Babylon will no longer be legitimate unless they have the statue of Marduk in Babylon to physically be the god's body, you know, (laughs) reifying the king's power. And it's not clear if this tradition was already fully formed during the archaic period at Kish, but it's certainly likely given the rest of Mesopotamian history. Records from Ebla do talk about creating parts of the statue for the image of the god. And I guess one more thing I do want to point out, there's no evidence of this at Kish yet, but by around 2500 BCE, we do have kind of big wooden carts pulled by kungas. So a kunga is a hybrid between a donkey and a wild ass. Basically, these were kind of like basically horses before horses were introduced to Mesopotamia. They're like high quality equids. They're strong. They can pull carts. They can run fairly fast. Um, you know, a good kunga can sell for many, many times the price of a regular donkey. You know, when we get into the, you know, end of the early dynasty period, alongside, obviously, people marching on foot with their weapons, we'll have huge battle carts pulled by kungas. They don't go that fast because they're really really heavy. You know, nothing like the late bronze age chariots, you know, famous from like the Iliad that are, you know, small, lightweight, pulled by horses, you know, designed to move quickly. You know, these these Mesopotamian battle carts are larger, slower. The wheels instead of being spoked are literally solid pieces of wood. In a way, they're almost,
2: you know, analogous to a tank. They're heavy, they're thick. The wheels don't have spokes and one has to imagine if you were uh, a foot soldier and you saw one of these things, you know, slowly making its way towards you, it would be absolutely terrifying.
0: Oh yeah. The more supplies you can load on your carts, you know, the less you have to carry with you and the less you have to depend on your supply line. So let's finish up today by looking at the Kingship of Kish, which will be an extremely important concept for the rest of the third millennium and beyond. So as you've been saying, for the first half of the 2000s BCE, Kish was the most important political and economic center in central Mesopotamia, and arguably in all of Mesopotamia. It was possibly the center of a territorial kingdom, you know, including parts of central Mesopotamia and some parts of Sumer too. There are some Sumerian cities that were probably part of the kingdom. So the economy of central Mesopotamia is dominated by palaces and elite households. Whereas in the South, the majority of elites have their office because of their position in the temple hierarchy. And we don't have really good data on whether they're from important families and they're already rich. And that's why they become part of the temple hierarchy or because the temple hierarchy hires them and then they become rich. We don't really know. But in the North, you don't have your high office from your job title. You have your high office either because you yourself are powerful king, chief, etc., or because you are in the good graces of a powerful king. So it's often assumed that Semitic-speaking peoples were mobile herders in the recent past. In the case of these Akkadians specifically, they were probably farming since forever. The idea of mobile herders is more based on the later Amorites, around 2000 BCE, and of course the later like Israelites, much later. And of course there were mobile herders, but the idea that all Semitic-speaking people, by virtue of being Semitic-speaking people, were mobile herders until they enter the historical record, is probably not the case. But it's worth pointing out that agricultural and herding societies do have different family structures. So agriculture is, of course, labor intensive, and it's tied to a particular place. You, know, you can't pick up your farmland and move it elsewhere. So a big kin group usually owns and inherits land collectively. So you have lots of relatives in that kin group to work the land. Usually that surplus, at least on the local level, is communally stored. And of course, public buildings and temples and so on, on a larger societal scale, are also communal storage in a way. So again, in Sumer, institutional leadership comes from participation in these big governing institutions, whereas on the other side, herding is mobile and not that labor intensive. You know, an individual household can meaningfully own a flock of sheep, unlike, you know, five people couldn't meaningfully own a huge plot of land that it would take dozens of people to work because they can't work it themselves and they can't stop other people from taking it and working it, you know. So, you know, when you have a small family with a herd of sheep, you can travel with it. You can exploit their resources, you know, wool, milk, sometimes meat. If you're starving, blood, you know, you can take their blood and they won't die. And you can keep others from doing the same because other people in your environment are also mobile herders. So, you know, they might try to rustle your sheep, but you have the same weapons as them. And that's how competition works. And also, um, I have a pet theory and it's not really based on a whole lot. But I have a pet theory that what I talked about in the Pottery Neolithic, when we see the kind of dissolution of large sites and instead the institutionalized connections between individual households over a large, large space and people become more mobile, less tied to a particular area, obviously people are hurting more. I have a theory personally, and it's again, not an expert, so feel free to discard this. But I have a theory that that is when the Semitic languages spread across the Near East, because that would allow, instead of one group of people living in more or less the same place for a long period of time that would allow a particular language group to send individual families and households all out across the region. And each individual household becomes its own diplomatic unit, you know, marrying, having feasts, having all kinds of agreements and and alliances and kin groups with other households. And, you know, that is when we see kind of a unified cultural identity across the entire Near East. My personal theory is that is when the Semitic language is spread, but I have no way of proving that or even knowing that. So who knows? or if this wasn't the period when Semitic languages spread. I think it's fair to say that this is at least when the Afro-Asiatic language family spread across the Near East, because we know that the Pottery Neolithic is around the same time that the first agriculturalists showed up in the Nile Valley, and the ancient Egyptian language is also inside the Afro-Asiatic language family, along with all the Semitic languages. So it's possible that there may have been a population expansion of Afro-Asiatic-speaking peoples during the Pottery Neolithic. But it is worth pointing out that this kind of mobile herding lifestyle often relies on you know you have one household that is shepherding their sheep around the grasslands, and you might have another branch of the same family that has a plot of land you know maybe a small plot of dry farming land or somewhere in the north that you know you uh, you know your dad and brothers go and graze the sheep during the you know one season, and then during the farming season they come back to your land to help you harvest, and then during the summer they go off to a different pasture land and whatever. Instead of thinking of these ideal types as you know. Herding peoples on one side and farming peoples on the other and nothing in between. You know, obviously we'll talk about the fact that agricultural societies did all of their own herding, like raised all their own animals. We didn't rely on external peoples for wool and herding peoples did their own farming on a small scale, but they didn't rely on settled civilizations for grain. They grew their own grain. It's not two diametrically opposed worlds. It's just two different emphases. It's also possible that herding peoples may have worked for settled societies on a seasonal basis. So for example... You know, when the state is paying peasants, you know, daily wages to come and work on infrastructure projects and construction projects, it's possible that herding people may have showed up for a couple months out of year to be paid in grain and to work for the settled societies. So because this kind of wealth can be owned by an individual, again, because it doesn't take that many people to watch over a flock of sheep, it really matters which children that wealth gets passed down to. So instead of one big plot of land that all the children inherit, and that all the children work on and live on, and then pass down to their own kids that are live in the same place and work the same land. You know, it really matters which kid you give your sheep to. So you know, this is when we see the importance of lineage and patrilineal inheritance, so in, uh, primogeniture. You know, the idea that the oldest son gets the majority or the you know the best part of the patrimony. Obviously, this shows up in the story of Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament, when Jacob tricks Esau out of the birthright, even though Jacob is a younger son. So, you know, when you have a lot of wealth passing from parents to children, it's really important to be able to verify lineage. The only way you can verify male lineage, you know, in other words, in a pre-modern society before DNA testing, the only way you can be 100% sure who your dad was is if your dad had total control over your mother's sexuality. So there has to be this kind of patriarchal control, you know, control of the fathers over unmarried women and control of the husbands over married women to fully control female sexuality so that they could be 100% sure that when, you know, a married couple has a kid, that kid is the son of the father. All kinds of problems could result if that's not sure. So, you know, when that kind of inheritance compounds over generations... You know, when a wealthy man who owns a lot of sheep in a patrilineal society where his oldest son is going to inherit either all of it or most of it or whatever, you know, this is how you end up with a hereditary aristocracy. So, you know, we see in late Tepe Gaura back in season two, child burials with a whole bunch of treasure. You know, this would have been another herding community where if a rich guy died and left all his treasure to his oldest son, but his oldest son is like, you know, 10 years old and then his oldest son dies, well, he doesn't have an heir. So that treasure can't be redistributed elsewhere. So in a way, that can help explain why these kids are getting buried with all this treasure. The basis of the legitimacy of this new elite class is the same kind of patrilineal inheritance that allows a kid to inherit all this treasure. So it's in their interest as a class to reify that legitimacy by burying the kid with the treasure and essentially taking that inheritance as legitimate so that everyone else can see them taking the rules of inheritance seriously. You know, if you have one case where you break the rules of inheritance and whoever gets that treasure, well, why don't we break the rules every time? And why don't we all share this treasure? So, you know, obviously that's not the only explanation, but it's a part of this kind of large scale pattern that we're seeing. So eventually you have a handful of wealthy, powerful families with wide reaching connections. They all have similar goals, you know, wealth, prestige, security, and so on. And similar means, which is lots of livestock and lots of powerful allies, you know, allied to them via marriages, via feasts and and all kinds of bonding rituals and so on this doesn't necessarily result in a kingdom like we see at kish you know for long periods of history semi-mobile herders come and go you know you'll have powerful chieftains and powerful tribal leaders and they you know maybe an individual maybe a family or whatever will hold unique power for a certain period of time but unlike a big agricultural city that power is not likely to remain in the same place forever and one way to fight against that entropy is to consolidate as much power and resources and labor and so on under the control of one powerful you know, patriarchal leader. It's, it's fair to say that the process of powerful chiefs of kind of mobile herding societies turning into institutional kings, you know, this process centers on the household of the leader. So obviously the main members of this family are the, you know, the, the, the patriarchs, their wives and their legitimate children. And, you know, the second layer of that will be all of their powerful allies, usually wealthy people in their own right who are allied to the king or the powerful chief, not on his own level, but on the next level down. So, you know, they have their own wealth, they have their own power and prestige. When the chiefdom becomes a kingdom, these leaders will kind of have government authorities parceled out to them willy-nilly. Like what do we see at Ebla? You know, it's not like what we, what we think of where, you know, a company's like, well, you know, we need a CFO and we need a director of marketing and we need a whatever, and we hire someone who has marketing experience or whatever. You know, what we see at Ebla is more, you know, the king has this ally and this ally and this ally and you know, this prominent leader and this guy, this you know, head of a clan. So this guy's going to take, uh, you take taxes and you take, uh, I don't know, tribute. And you take, you know, whatever. So in a way, it's kind of a patronage system where once the king achieves institutional power, the institutional offices get passed down to his biggest allies and or his family members. So we don't know details about the state of Kish. So I mentioned at Ebla, heads of other powerful tribes and other also like town leaders, like village leaders and so on, are members of the king's permanent council. And he'll also keep other leaders and allies and so on around to get their input, to keep them on his side and so on. And of course, the existence of this scribal tradition inherited from Sumer almost certainly points to a large and extensive bureaucracy, again, like we see in Ur and Unug and many other places. So probably there was an official in charge of the palace household, like a minister or a vizier. During the reign of the last king of Ebla, the two viziers exercised much more power than the king himself probably because he took power when he was a kid. Almost certainly, given analogies to other Sumerian cities, Kish probably had palace officials in charge of production. So, you know, the palace would have full-time employees and officials supervising things like farming, herding, weaving, brewing, pottery, fine arts, carpentry, and so on. So, you know, the palace officials would oversee overseers who are themselves employees, but, you know, middle-level managers who would oversee teams of workers. You know, like we saw at Ur, there is a very regimented control of labor with almost like an army. And it's very likely given that, Sumerian texts use the same words for a work team doing manual labor and a, a division of soldiers, you know, likely that the same people were drafted for both kinds of labor in the same ways and using the same officials and so on. So, you know, just like Sumerian temples are the large, powerful institutional households of a particular God, you know, a palace is a large, powerful institutional household of the King and his Royal family. Again, they're receiving lots of input from other stakeholders and so on. Yeah. So I mentioned the Sumerian king list. Constantly. I should clarify. The Sumerian King List is a historical, ideological propaganda document, uh, first produced in the 21st century. The third dynasty of Ur uh, wanted to kind of project the image of a unified kingdom of Mesopotamia that had always been unified going back to the beginning of time, just ruled by different cities, obviously, to create the idea that they were the legitimate inheritors of all of Mesopotamia, not just Ur, where they were. So in the Sumerian king list, Kish is the first dynasty after the flood. There are five Sumerian kings before the flood, and then there, then the flood happens. Same flood is in the Bible and Epictetus, et cetera. So, you know, the first king after this mythological flood is the first king of Kish. And then we have 23 kings of Kish, which is the most kings per dynasty in this Sumerian king list. So the first 12 kings of Kish in the Sumerian king list have kind of folklore type names, names like dog, lamb, scorpion, buck, son of gazelle, and so on. So, you know, this may be kind of like a folkloric tradition of, you know, way back in the day, we were ruled by King Dog and then King, you know, whatever, King Scorpion, Scorpion King. So the first king in this list mentioned in other texts is, quote, Etana, the shepherd, he who ascended to heaven, who made firm all the lands, end quote. So a thousand years later, we have a text called the Etana Epic about the first king of Kish. The text also calls him, quote, first king of all, end quote. So like I said, he is the 13th king of Kish in the Sumerian king list. But in the genuine tradition of historical kings of Kish, or legendary kings, he was probably the first after the flood, to the extent that Kish had a flood narrative. We don't know. Although it's probably not unlikely. They were in the floodplains and probably more vulnerable to floods. Makes you think. Anyway, so the idea of having kind of like legendary ancestors before the real historical kings, the first time we see an example of this is at Ebla, which I keep mentioning, around 2300 BCE, when we have a text that goes back to the historical kings and then a few more that probably were real kings that we have no record of because Eblo was not important at the time. And then before that, there are kings who have the same names as nearby towns. So probably what that is, is you get to the beginning of the historical record as we know it. Like, well, they can't be it. You know, we can't have had only five kings or whatever before the ones we know of. So what if, I don't know, like, you know, you, you are, you are uh, creating a historical king list of the kings of New York. And you run out of leaders of New York. Like, okay, well, uh, obviously, there's um, King Newark who founded Newark, and there's a King uh, New Haven who founded New Haven, Connecticut. So, when they run out of historical kings, they incorporate the legendary founders of different settlements in the area, A, to round out the king list so it looks like they have been ruling for longer, B, to incorporate other traditions. At least the elites of town B probably trace their lineage back to founder B, who named settlement B after himself. There's that angle. And there's also the angle of patrilineally, you want to remember all your male ancestors in order. And in the Assyrian king list later on, they have a list of kings, and then they have kings who lived in tents, who are kind of like the legendary founder kings. And those kings are counted backwards. So in other words, you go to the most recent, and then his father was, and then his father was, and then his father was. And this is the way that you would trace lineage in a patrilineal system. It's the same way that Arabic surnames still work in the present. So you know, I am me, son of my father, son of my grandfather, son of my, etc. So this would be a way to link the patrilineal tradition to the tradition of keeping track of kings. So there's that. Anyway, the Sumerian king list says that Etana, quote, made firm all the lands, end quote. So this implies some kind of wide-reaching hegemony. We know that Kish was remembered as a great power when this text was written down, so it appears to credit him with establishing that power. It also says he, quote, ascended to heaven, end quote. So this tradition was apparently current in the late third millennium. We have seals from the Sargonic period of a mortal rising to heaven on an eagle's back, but we don't have a textual version of the story until the second millennium. So in the Sumerian king list, the seven kings after Etana all have Semitic names. Then we see King Enme Baragesi, quote, who made the land of Elam submit, end quote. So he is the only king of Kish from the Sumerian king list who is also attested in the archaeological record. In the Sumerian king list, his son is Aga, king of Kish, who shows up in a story about Gilgamesh, which we read at the beginning. So like I said, at least 13 of these kings of Kish in the Sumerian king list have Semitic animal names. So these might be clan names. You know, they might have some origin in folklore. They might be names of constellations. The astronomy slash astrology that we associate with the Near East really got going in Babylonia after about 2000 BCE but it may have had a precursor in the same region earlier on. It's possible that all of the names of the kings of Kish were Semitic names, just some of them were written with Sumerian ideographs that academics tend to read in Sumerian. But like I said in Season 3, Episode 1, the Sumerian king list is not objective history. Like I said, the earliest records we have are from the 21st century BCE. Only a few kings from the early dynasty period can be independently verified. And several important kings aren't mentioned at all, like Messilim, who may have been a king of Kesh, and every king of Lagash, both dynasties, which was a very intentional omission. So this is probably based more on oral tradition rather than written records, to the extent they would have had written records from earlier periods of history. So moving to artistic representations of kings, we have a small plaque made of black stone, so a different object from the prisoner plaque that we were talking about earlier. But like the prisoner plaque, we have a scene depicted on it. So this is in front of a monumental building built in the Uruk or Jemdat Nasser style a small man is raising his arm and touching a big man near his armpit. The big man lays his clutched hand on the small man's head. This may be grabbing him by the hair, like he would for a prisoner. It may be anointing a successor, the opposite interpretation. So this is similar to an earlier proto-Elamite seal from Iran, where you have a big man in the center raising his arm, and a small man approaching from the left, putting his palm in the big man's armpit. In a 2010 paper, Peter Sherva called this, quote, an act of transfer of personal mana of the big man, and thus is the very first known instance of conferment of political power from its bearer to his chosen successor which maybe, maybe not, who knows. This may speak to a different basis for royal power. So at Unug and Ur, you know, the royal ideology is very clear that the rulers are anointed by the gods and the role is to honor the gods. But, you know, to the extent that this is a ruler choosing his successor, this may indicate that at Kish, rulers were anointed by older relatives on the basis of family connections. So again, maybe. In seal impressions from Kish during the 2600s BCE or so, we see inscriptions with the title Lugal, meaning king, So Lugal does not show up on seals at Ur until the Royal Cemetery period, closer to 2500 or so. We know Lagash had a Lugal during the Archaic period. Like I said, it's a matter of debate whether Ur did. And notably, these kings of Ur during the Royal Cemetery period do call themselves kings of Kish, even though they may or may not have ruled Kish. So one of these sealings has two impressions. One says Lugal. The other has the same sign, Lugal, plus a damaged sign, which may be a place name. So it might be king of and then a damaged place name. That name might be hash which appears alongside city seals from the Jemdet Nasser period. So what this may mean is that you have two levels of royal authority. You have the, you know, the, the king of Kish, and then you have a, a lower level king who also had to sign off on this document. And hash are the signs, not how they were pronounced, so we don't know exactly how it was pronounced. And then I'll mention this in the next episode on Kish, but we also have these elite cart burials. So at Ur, we had these massive cart burials where, again, dozens of people were sacrificed when an important person died, and these dead bodies would be kind of laid out in the tomb in this kind of representation of a uh, royal court, I guess. So you'd have, like, you know, temple singers and, uh, you know, cart driver the <laughs> with the, the donkeys and the carts buried in the tomb and all killed. We don't have anything that elaborate at Kish, um, but we do have cart burials. So we do have elites buried with carts fully underground, with all of their stuff, which probably speaks to a shared ideology in some way. All right, we're gonna home stretch. So obviously there were actual historical kings of Kish. We know that Enmebaragesi Baragesi was almost certainly a real king who really ruled Kish. You know, they would have controlled a large part of Mesopotamia in the archaic period. And they left inscriptions as far away as Lagash, which we'll talk about. That was Mesilim, But there's also a title, and the title is Lugal Kishki, or, well, I guess Lugal Kish, the key ki is not pronounced. So this means King of Kish. And this corresponds to the later Akkadian title, Shar Kishatim, or King of All, that is, of the known world. So this title was used by several kings who definitely didn't rule Kish, and it was used by some other kings who may or may not have ruled Kish. So some Sumerian kings who titled themselves King of Kish include mes of Ur, lugal kinginadudu dudu of Unug, and Ayanatum of Lagash. We'll talk about all those later. So the first king attested in both the Sumerian king list and other texts is Enme Baragesi. Obviously, the Sumerian king list is not reliable as a historical document, but like I said, he is attested elsewhere. In the king list, it says he, quote, made the land of Elam Submit, end quote, which again probably refers to some kind of invasion of southwestern Iran. This has been called the earliest documented war in history, but it's only true if you count the king list as history, which it kind of isn't. But we do have two inscriptions from the early dynastic that refer to a king of Kish named Me-Barag-Si, which may have been pronounced Me-Parasi. This may be the same guy as en me N En is a title, of course, meaning lord. So Enmeh may have been Lord Mebaragesi, which you can see how they get that from Mebaragesi. But Sumerian names follow a similar pattern throughout the third millennium. They usually have two parts. You have the first part, which is either a title or a familiar relation. And the second part is either a place name or a religious phrase. So common elements from the first part, you have Lugal, Nin, En, meaning king, lady, or lord. Lu, or Munus, meaning man or girl. Ama means mother, might also be an archaic name for lord. And the sign, me might have been pronounced Ishib, or priest. So the name written with the sign, May, and the phonetic value, Barag might have been pronounced Ishib Barag A which would be Sumerian for priest who permeates the throne dais. In other words, this inscription may not refer to the king, but instead it might just be a different guy's name that happens to be similar to the way it's written in cuneiform. So we have a literary text called the Tumal Chronicle, written around 2000 BCE. It is a list of rulers who rebuilt temples to Enlil in Nippur and shrines to his wife, Ninlil, in nearby Tumal. So Enme Bargesi is the first king the text mentions. It calls him the first builder of the Enlil Temple in Nippur. So like I said, Nippur is this kind of religious capital, politically neutral. So the Kesh Temple hymn, Kesh with an E, not Kish, from Abu Salabik during the Farah period in the 2500s BCE, describes an unnamed king of Kish building a temple precinct. This may have been in the city of Sharakum, or Uru Sang Rig, near Nippur. Sharakum shows up in the list of geographic names, which may be, as I said, a list of the settlements controlled by the kingdom of Kish. This king may be Enmei Baragasi, but no way to prove that. Um, Relevant to Enmei Baragasi, though, the list of geographic names also includes some place names in Elam, or in southwest Iran. For example, Arawa, Uruaz, and maybe the Karun River. So if you have this text that is allegedly a list of all the places controlled by Kish, and you have the Sumerian king list that says that Enmei Baragasi invaded southwest Iran, you know, maybe there's something to this. Similarly, we have a text from Shurupak around the same time, 2500s, about Lugal Banda, who's Gilgamesh's dad. He takes his young bride, Ninsun, or Ninsumun, from Uruaz in the east. Ninsumun is otherwise associated with the Unug area. We also have another text from Abu Salabik that describes Inanna taking her seat in Uruaz. Uh, we know this was definitely in southwest Iran somewhere, but we're not sure exactly where. It might be modern Ahwaz, in which case it would have had the same name for 5,000 years. During the Bronze Age, Ahwaz would have been less than 7 kilometers from the Gulf Coast. A list of geographic names might also point to areas east of Hawaz, like Hurum of the Mountain, which is where Lugalbanda is stranded. This may be the etymology of the modern area Ram Hormuz in Iran. This is apparently unrelated to the etymology of the Hurrian people and language we'll see in the future. And last king of Archaic Kish that we'll look at today is Aga. So the text that we started with, Gilgamesh versus Aga of Kish. Gilgamesh is the king of Unug and he wants to go to war with Kish. The reason they're going to war is unclear. It might be because of onerous labor requirements. In other words, Unug, at least in the story, might have been a vassal of Kish, and Kish was demanding too many laborers from Unug, so Gilgamesh might have achieved Unug's independence against Kish. The story is often interpreted as a historical fact, especially because the Sumerian king list says Aga is the son of Enmei Baragesi. But these stories were written down 500 plus years later, and we can't prove anything for fiction written that far after historical events. And it's worth noting that the Sumerian king list and Gilgamesh versus Aga of Kish were produced at the same time in the same royal court. So it's not like they are two independent sources of the same information. They're working from the same, you know, basic assumptions. So we have a stila from Uma. Around the 2600 BCE or so, it mentions a guy named Akka as the Gal-Ukin official. Akka, or Aga, is a relatively uncommon personal name in the early dynastic. And, you know, one of the only other places it shows up is this legendary king of Kish. Worth pointing out that the list of geographic names does not mention the Uma area. So, if those are the cities in the kingdom of Kish, Kish did not rule Uma. So, it might just be a guy with the same name. It would be weird if the overlord king of the entire kingdom was mentioned as a mid-level official in Uma, but... Mm. We also have a hymn to Inanna of Zabalam near Uma. This text was quote-unquote unprovenanced, which means looted and then acquired on the black market. In this text, Akka is mentioned as the king of Gisha, which is one of the twin cities in Uma. So if King Aga of Kish really did control the south, that would mean that Gilgamesh and Aga has a kernel of truth. You know, it may even refer to a real historical revolt against the hegemony of Kish, maybe even led by a King Gilgamesh of Unug. But... You know, there's no way to know. All right, that's it. So next episode is going to be on Mari, which is this massive city founded from scratch on the middle Euphrates where nobody lived previously and there was no previous uh, settlement. And around 2900 BCE, we have this city built with, you know, an inner wall and an outer wall, almost two kilometers in diameter. And I think 150 kilometers of canals dug to link it both with the Euphrates and with the Habur River, which is nearby. We have no idea who built it. Like I said, there's not any large city anywhere nearby. It would have been a massive expense of labor and obviously logistics and so on. They're moving mountains worth of land to dig these uh, nice flat canals to make river travel easier through what was probably a trade port meant to link Southern Mesopotamia with the upper Euphrates. Like I said, we don't know who built it. The kingdom of Kish would be as good a candidate as any because they were powerful around that time and they would have benefited from a large port farther up the Euphrates. But we don't have any text from that period, so there's no way to know. Might have also been the city of Terka. So. Mm. And next up, us, we're also looking at the Lower Diala region. So that's the cities of Eshnuna and Tutub. We also don't have any text from the Archaic period there, but we do have a fair amount of archaeology.
2: That's going to be a really good one.
0: Right. So previously, Gilgamesh wanted to go to war against King Aga of Kish. He asked the elders of the city assembly, and they said no. Then he didn't like that answer, so he went to the assembly of the young fighting men, and they said, yes, we should go to war.
1: Hey, hey young fighting guys, you want to go fight?
0: Yeah. <laughs> so here we see a very similar scene that we saw in the Iliad, way back in the battle episode. It's the king's turn to rally his men to battle, so he calls to his attendant, who is more famous from other stories. Note the emphasis on the mace. Oh. Huh. Then Gilgamesh, the lord of Kulaba, rejoiced at the advice of his city's able-bodied men, and his
1: spirit brightened. He addressed his servant, Enkidu. On this account, let the weaponry and arms of battle be made ready. Let the battle mace return to your side. May they create a great terror and radiance. Not
0: five, not 10 days had passed when Aga, the son of Enme Baragesi, laid siege to Unug with his men. Unug's reasoning became confused. Gilgamesh, the Lord
1: of Kulaba, addressed its warriors. My warriors shall have the choice. Let someone with courage volunteer. And I will send him to Aga. So,
0: Aga's army captures Gilgamesh's royal guard, whose name is bir hur One of Gilgamesh's officials climbs up on the ramparts. And Aga, king of Kish, asks bir hur Slave, is that man your king? And bir hur answers,
1: That man is not my king. Were that man my king, Were that his angry brow? Were those his bison eyes? Were that his lapis lazuli beard? Were those his elegant fingers? Would he not cast down multitudes? Would he not raise up multitudes? Would multitudes not be smeared with dust? Would not all the nations be overwhelmed? Would not the land's canal mouths be filled with silt? Would not the barge's prows be broken? And would he not take Aga, the king of Kish, captive in the midst of his
2: army?
0: So the European bison used to live across Eurasia, not to be confused with the water buffalo, which also lived in Sumer. So anyway, Aga does not like Bir Hurtura's answer. They hit him, they struck him, they beat Bir Hurtura's entire length. Gilgamesh climbed up on the rampart after the officer of Unug. His radiance overwhelmed Kulaba's young and old. He armed Unug's able-bodied men with battle maces and stationed them on the causeway at the city gate's door. Only Enkidu went out through the city gate. Gilgamesh leaned out over the rampart. Looking up, Aga saw him. Slave, is that man your king? That man is indeed my king. So Unug and Kish go to battle, and the narrator paraphrases Hurtura's threat. It was just as he had said. Gilgamesh cast down multitudes. He raised up multitudes. Multitudes were smeared with dust. All the nations were overwhelmed. The land's canal mouths were filled with silt. The barge's prows were broken. And he took Aga, the king of Kish, captive in the midst of his army. So a victorious Gilgamesh says to his captive, Aga,
1: I watch over Unug, the handiwork of the gods, its great ramparts, a cloud bake resting on the earth its majestic residence, which on established, the city will repay the kindness shown to me. Before Utu, your former kindness is hereby repaid to you.
0: So Utu is the sun god and the god of justice. So he set Aga free to go to Kish. Gilgamesh, lord of Kulaba, praising you is sweet.
1: Wow, that war really resolved quickly.
0: <laughs> yeah.